I'm not confident you just you know the words that you just sang um, because you pretty much just prayed for patience. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. <laughs> you just prayed for God, bring me things that make me have to grow in my trust for, of you. <clears throat> Let's see how next week goes. So we're... We've had a few breaks here and there, but we're going to continue in our Greater Than series, and we'll, um, the rest of July we'll finish out um, this series. Um, today we're looking at uh, Galatians, Galatians, Colossians, um, chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. In verse 16 and 17, he starts out this way. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So why would Paul tell the Colossians to not let anyone judge them on their diet and religious celebrations? Why would he say that to them? Well, he, he's trying to remind them that their religious practices aren't the point of being a Christian. The point is to follow Christ and to allow Him to reign supreme over your life. It's not about the practices. It's never been about the practices. You see, this is where the Hebrew people, the Israelites, got everything horribly wrong in the desert. In the Old Testament, we see them complain a lot. And as we see them travel through the desert at the beginning in Exodus, they start to complain, well, things were better when we were back in slavery in Egypt. We should just go back. God gives them the law. Why does he give them the law? To control them and make sure that they do what they're supposed to do? No, not at all. You see, he actually gave them the law, hoping that they would see the connection to him. You see, the law was always made to help the Israelites return to God. To see the need that the sacrifice was to bring our attention back to our sinfulness and our need for God. But what had happened was that the practices, the, the, the law, became the God. The law became what they put their faith in. 
Well, if we just do these things, then we're going to be in the right standing with God. We'll be good if we do what the law tells us to do. Well, when we look at the, the whole diet thing, if we look in Paul's letter to the Romans, we see how he addresses this idea of um, the food that we eat. In Romans 14, 5 through 6, he says, One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each one of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Romans 14, 14. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is clean or is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. They're like, what is he talking about? Well, you're a good Gentile, so you're not sure what in the world he's talking about. Well, he's talking about the law. You see, because the Romans were Gentiles, and there was a lot of Jews in Rome, and the Jews were trying to tell the Gentiles that to be a good Christian, you had to do what the law said. So you could only eat certain foods. So you had one side saying, these foods are unclean, these foods are good, you can have these foods, but you can't eat these foods. And, and this side was like, it all tastes good to me, so you know they, they didn't care. And so there was this argument, was the food what was really unclean or was it the nature in which it was consumed and taken into the body which made it unclean? And so as there was this argument back and forth. Well, see, what we have to understand fully is that the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So as Gentiles who were never under the law of Moses, we don't have to worry about eating the things that are kosher, the things that are clean and unclean. When Paul references the religious festivals, the new moon celebration of the Sabbath, he is referring to the sacrificial system regulated by the Torah in accordance with the Jewish laws. He's talking about those specific things that they did. So, are we to say that Paul and Timothy are 
saying that these things are not important and we do not need to obey the things that we like to refer to as the rules and regulations? Have you ever um, asked somebody or talked to somebody about Jesus or about being a Christian or being a follower of Christ and they've responded with, I'm not about all those rules and regulations. I'm not like, have you had anybody ever tell you that? You see, because they see what we've put them under. You see, as Christians, we're really bad about saying, Jesus Christ came, he died for me, my sins are forgiven, I don't have to live under the law. Thank you, Jesus. But somebody that doesn't know who Jesus is, we tell them all the things that they have to do. Well, you need to come to church, you need to start reading your Bible, you need to start praying, you need to start, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to stop doing this and this and this. And what do they hear? this long list of rules and regulations, and they're like, I just became an adult. I no longer have to live under my parents' roof and their rules and regulations. Why would I want to go back to that? Does it make sense? This doesn't mean that God doesn't want our lives to change. That he doesn't want to see growth through our lives. Sometimes we get this idea that God isn't interested in the, the periphery things in our lives. Our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts, our relationships, our behavior, the way we invest our money. Oh, he couldn't care less about that, right? Um, he doesn't care about the way we treat our kids. He doesn't, you know, how we interact with our friends, how we do our job. He doesn't care about those things, right? Well, see, all those things do reflect the new reality. They don't affect the reality we have in Christ. You see, the things on the outside of our life should not affect the reality of what Christ is doing on the inside. You see, as a lot of times new Christians or people that may be interested in Jesus, but they're not, whole, they're not sure about this whole like church thing, they have this idea in their minds that they've got to get the outside part of their life to be a certain way. It's got to look pretty immaculate, right? But you see, God cares more about what's on the inside than he does what's on the outside when we come to him. You see, because the outside is transformed through what happens on the inside of our life. So Paul goes on, verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. 
They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 20, since you died with Christ in the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belonging, belong to the world, do you submit to the rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So I kind of highlighted a little phrase there, disqualify you. We see in verse 16, it says, do not let anyone judge you. And then he goes on and says, do not let anyone disqualify you. Well, the disqualify, literally, Paul and Timothy are specifically meaning to exclude from the salvation that comes from God. Do not let this heresy that has come into the church, do not let this false teaching disqualify you from the salvation that comes from God. This judgment from the Halaic mystics, Literally, they pronounced the converts in Colossae to be unacceptable to God unless they did these things. You had to do these certain things in order to be acceptable to God. Angels, or they talk about worshiping angels. I know um, I've had some people ask me, um, they've read this text and they're like, oh, we should be worshiping angels. No, that's not what this is talking about. But you have to look underneath a lot of things to fully understand what this is talking about. So someone who has done the research, and I'm kind of interesting, glad that he didn't come today um, because I'm quoting him. Um, a couple times we've had one of my old professors, uh, Ken Skank over here um, with his wife. They've come a couple times. And I was like, that's ah, going to be a little awkward quoting him if he shows up, but... Not that I don't want people to come, but, you know. So, so he's done the work. He's written the commentaries. So here's what he says about worship of angels, that phrase that Paul uses. In his book, God's Plan Fulfilled, he states, the phrase worship of angels was not about worshiping angels at all, but about angels worshiping. In other words, the philosophy in question was a form of mystical Judaism that highly valued visions of the heavenly realm. One who had such a vision mystically entered into the divine world and participated in heavenly worship. He goes on to say, For them, the issue seemed to be about how to attain spiritual wisdom by entering into the angelic realm. They believed that keeping the Jewish law and certain aesthetic 
practices, matters of extreme self-discipline, qualified you for access to the heavenly realm alongside the angels, thus providing true worship. So that's a, like kind of like we hear that and we're like, well, that's kind of like a little sci-fi-ish to a degree. But we have to kind of go to that place to, to worship, to be in their presence. To, and it's like in, in order to be able to do that, you had to fulfill the law to get you there. That was the heresy that was being brought into the church. You had to fulfill the law in order to be right and acceptable to God. But he's saying, no, that is not the case. So let's do a a little participation. Um, Let's help me out. What are some of the religious practices that we tend to advocate for the church today? Anybody? What are some religious practices that we are like, you're not holy unless attendance at Sunday at worship. Did both of you, I heard two people, okay. Anybody else? That is one, yes. Communion, okay, yep. Some churches, some denominations are like, you don't receive communion, buddy. You're not in the good with God. Baptism, yeah. Um, For the Catholic Church, confession of sin. Like if you don't go to confession and confess your sins to the priest, you can't be in right standing with God. So I'll help you out. I have attending worship, praying, reading the Bible, church membership. You are not holy unless you are a member of the church. Musical style preference. No, never. Yep, that's one. Giving of tithes and offerings. The setting of the worship environment. It is true. How the pastor preaches. Yep, that's one. Um, How people dress and look. It's one. These are all things that we like to put on top of people. So think about these things that we've kind of talked about here. What is the why behind them? Why do we do these things? Why do we think that these things are important to do? You see, we get stuck in religion, which is defined by one word, do. What I do, I have to do in order to be right with God. I've I've got to do these things to be right with God. But we don't have to be stuck in religion because we're under or in Christ. And that relationship is defined by one word, which is done. You see, our relationship with Christ is defined by not what we do to be right with Jesus. It's what Jesus has already done for us that makes us right with God. But we get stuck. 
Have you ever found yourself in the place where we, uh, just in case, just in case I'll put a few extra dollars in the offering this week. Just in case I'll be nice to this person. Uh, Just in case I'll donate my services to get in good with God. No joke, when I was my previous church, I literally had a contractor donate his services because he told me we occasionally like to get in good with God. <laughs> I'm like, oh, buddy, you're missing the mark. <laughs> you're going to have to do a whole... No, I didn't say... <laughs> Just in case, I'll, I'll, I'll attend worship this week as long as it's Christmas or Easter. Let me put that extra added in. I'll read these, these few Bible verses on my phone. I'll pray. I know how I'll pray. I'll pray, but I'll pray before I eat. Yeah, that, that's, that is, is, you know, I love the people who have never prayed a prayer in their life, but they still often pray for their food. It's like, are you Jewish? What? The only time you have to do something is just to fulfill a check mark? No. We don't do these things to have peace with God. We do these things because we have peace with God. We don't do them to get peace with God. We do them because we have peace with God. So let me tell you a story to help kind of illustrate what I'm trying to get at here. There were two sons, each in different households, two separate households at the opposite ends of the block. The father on the south end of the block tells his son to go out and mow the yard. The father at the north end of the block goes and tells his son to mow the yard. Both sons go out and they start mowing the yard and both sons wanted to do their best at mowing the yard. The house up the street, the father would always come out and say, you missed that little spot over there. You did pretty good right here, but you could have done a lot better. Why did it take you so long to mow the yard anyway? Can't you do it a little faster next time? There's never any hug. There's never any thanks for mowing the yard for me. There's never any security in the relationship. Just go do this for me. And it's probably not going to be good enough but try your best. The sun down the street is out mowing in the heat of the day, the same time of the day that the the sun up the street is mowing. But this kid is mowing like it's nobody's business. He's mowing this yard like he's mowing the White House lawn. Like he's confident that when I'm done mowing this yard, it is going to be the best looking yard in the city.
the whole time thinking, I'm going to crush this yard today. I'm going to do this like no one has ever done it before. And as he was doing it, he was doing it because he had a relationship with his dad where his dad often told him, I love you. His dad often grabbed him in and pulled him tight and gave him a hug and showed him that he cared for him. The father was filling his son with a sense of place, a sense of peace, a sense of purpose, a sense of acceptance. He was letting his son know, I love you because you are my son, not because of what you do for me. Two sons mow their lawn. One son mowing so that maybe, just maybe, one day he will earn the approval of his father. The other son mowing the lawn because he knew he already had his dad's approval. This is what Paul's trying to teach us. And it's a beautiful thing when you think about it. Stop doing things in order to get God's attention. That's not what he wants. You see, what Paul is trying to teach the people in Colossae, and I believe you and I today is that the things that we do are always in response to what Jesus has already done. You see, when we serve people, when we give of our tithes and our offerings, when we pray for someone, when we do something for someone, not expecting something in return, the why is the most important thing. Are you doing it just simply because that's what you believe is expected of you? Or are you doing it because you know that Jesus died for you? And then that when you give of your tithes and offerings, you're not doing it because God told you to. You're doing it because you want to see the kingdom of God move in advance and grow in ways that it never has before. You want to see other people experience the love of Jesus Christ the way that you have experienced it. The why has nothing to do with checking off the list for the day. It has everything to do with what you feel inside because of what Jesus has done for you. It's just like the song we sang. It's from the inside out. Have you ever met person who calls themselves a Christian that's trying to do things from the outside in 
if I just do these things, then I'm going to make my heart right. And if I just keep doing these things, then, then that means I'll eventually do them for the right reasons. All that is is behavior modification. You're fixing a behavior. You're not fixing an internal soul. How do we know this? I've been studying this a little bit. If you want to know what you're really made out of, stress yourself. Because when you're stressed, what's inside gets lived out. Because you see, it's really easy for us to live a Christian life when everything is great. But when the walls are crumbling in, when everything seems to be against you, when one thing after another after another seems to come down on top of you, and your life is stressed, your relationship with Jesus gets revealed. But here's the good thing. When your relationship with Jesus is revealed, it was never meant to be a stick that you beat yourself over the head with. I'm not doing this right. I messed up. I should have done doing this the whole time, and I should have done and done and done. Like, do you hear what I'm saying? All these do things. See, we're still not getting the fact that we have to live into what's already been done. And allow the internal transformation to be lived out. As I was going over these notes, you know, sometimes as a pastor, I can write a message and not fully understand what I've just written. So Sunday mornings, I come in early. I go over this many times, okay? I'm going through this. I'm prayerfully reading through it. And I'm going over my notes about the tale of the two sons. And immediately, I'm just convicted. I'm like, do my kids, do my girls think that they have to do things to earn my approval? Does Samantha think that she has to be an awesome runner in order to be accepted by me? Does Ariana think that she has to be good at basketball or softball and she can never fail in order to be accepted by me? Do my kids have to pick up around the house and pick up all their trash and do everything that's expected of them rules, regulations, in order to be accepted by me. Or do I let them know enough that I love them? Because you see, what convicted me was the realization that they do things that I tell them to do begrudgingly because they don't want to do them. And I know that sounds like, well, what are you talking about? It sounds like every teenager in the history of man, right? 
but maybe it's because every teenager in the history of man has felt like they had to do the things to get approval. And over time, the list of what they had to do just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And they never felt like they were just loved for who they were. Think about it. Seriously, think through your life. Because even as I'm talking, I'm thinking about my parents. And I'm thinking about my parents' parents. And I'm thinking about kids that I know and their parents. And all I come back to is take out the trash, clean your room, do this, do this. The kids that I played sports with growing up constantly being ridiculed and belittled from the stands as their kid is out in the field because they didn't do something right. And their parent is making them look like the littlest, in, you know, inadequate person ever. You can't help but be embarrassed for them. We put that on kids. You can't go to a ball field without parents going ballistic. Why? No one likes the umpires. There's actually umpires and referee shortage across the country. Why? Because when COVID happened, people said, well, well, COVID was the problem. I think it was a small part of the problem. I think COVID was just actually the opportunity that a lot of these people took to say, I'm out. I don't want to deal with them anymore. But you know, I found out the quickest way to shut down crazy parents. Just put it on top of them. Sir? How would you act if your kid did that? How would you act if your kid said that? Typically is the response, unless you get, I mean, sometimes you get the idiots that are like, they like, my kid better act like that if you do that, you know, type of thing. You get those, but that's hopefully the anomaly. I say all that, I give all that, because what's inside is what's going to come out. As pastors, as a pastor, do you feel like I'm just full, like you have to do this, 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 or the pastor doesn't like me, or I'm not being good enough to my pastor? I actually read an article this week that's one of the worst injustices that churches can do is overserve and overhonor their pastors. They kind of put them up here on the pedestal. I mean, megachurch pastors right now are getting canned by the boatload because of all these moral failures. Well, guess what happened? Their church put them up on this pedestal as this holy spiritual human being that could do no wrong. 
The board said yes to everything that these pastors wanted. And so they got whatever they wanted. They could, the expense account was endless. They, they traveled wherever they wanted. They did whatever they wanted. They governed however they wanted. And then all of a sudden, everything's come crashing down. And the church is left looking around like, what just happened? Well, you happened. Because you put the pastor up here like he's saint, you know, whoever, instead of the shepherd that's a normal human being. We can over-honor each other. So here's my challenge to you this week. I want you to make a list of the things that you think are necessary for being a good Christian. What are the things that you think are good thing, like to be a good Christian, these have to be a part of my life. And then I want you to take some time and investigate what Scripture says. A good place to start is Ephesians. Ephesians, the letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Look for yourself. Don't take my word for it. And ask God that he would renew your perception of salvation. Because here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want any of us to be disqualified because we thought we had to check off a bunch of boxes. Okay? Stand with me. If you would reach out your hands and receive this blessing. Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to live into our faith. I thank you for this opportunity to evaluate our relationship with you. God, help us to think back at times when we're stressed and and think about what came out. What were the words that we used? What was our behavior? God, I pray that you will help us to surrender to you. God, I pray that you would redeem not just the outside of us, but our souls. That you will help us live out of what you have already done for us. Through your grace and your love and your mercy. Renew in us, God, a steadfast spirit that seeks you and seeks to honor you from the inside out.